Hi, welcome to the last of three episodes of The Guru taking place at Guru Live, a two-day festival of TV, film and game talks across two cities. I'm Rihanna Dillon and I've joined the creatives that have descended on London and Glasgow to hear advice about the video game industry. From interactive storytelling to launching your debut or working in VR, with the creatives behind games including Tomb Raider, Alien Insurrection and Grand Theft Auto, you won't want to miss this episode. Stay with us. Let's start by exploring the highs and lows of getting a debut game launched, with a panel discussing what it takes to deliver your first game. We'll hear from Muyu from Studio Foam Sword about their upcoming game, Nights and Bikes, and Ricky Haggart, the man behind Loot Rascals. Your host is Philippa Waugh. Let's hear a clip where she asked Mu what inspired him to make his first game. You pretty much have to find the one or two things that are the thing that matter most to you and just build everything around that. So I think there was two things for us. Like, I think Rex really wanted to make a game that was about childhood and you know, everything from the eyes of a child. And then I wanted to make a game that, was, um, that you could play with someone. Like, I, I definitely had a dark time in my life where I just used games as a way to keep people away from me. And then I remember when I was a child and I played so many games and that was how I made all my friends. And like, to me, it's really important that I make a game that helps people, you know, bring them towards other people rather than keep them apart. And so I think because of these two things, you know, like childhood and, you know, playing games with other people, we sort of came up with, well, the obvious theme is friendship. And now we're making a game about friendship and co-op and that kind of stuff. And so we just sort of said, like, these two things are critical. Everything else can go. Um, and so we just, you know, everything we build is around, you know, the idea of these two girls and them being friends and them playing together and you know, going on crazy adventures together and that kind of stuff. And I think there's lots of other scope, like one of the, one of the weird scope creep things we did. And I kind of regret it now, but, you know, we, we've, we confirmed it as like doing online co-op. Like that's a huge beast of, of a task. Um, but I just remembered, you know, when I played games as a kid, like Secret of Mana was, you know, a game I played with my friends, you know, at least once a year for like probably 15 years. And now all those friends are in America and I can't play Secret of Mana with them. And I was just like... You know, I could fly out there and play nights and bikes with them, maybe, but it's just like if we had online co-op, I could definitely like, you know, find a way to play this with them once a year. And it just became this really important thing for me. Like I obsessed over it just because like I want to play with my friend Jacob. And you know, like the only way I can do that if I is I if I add online co-op, even though that's probably like three months of work. Um, but you know, it it just I don't know, it just reminded Jacob's me. Jacob's a really good friend. Though. Jacob is a very good friend. Um, but yeah, it, yeah it, it, just, it goes back to that that you know that pillar of just like it brings me back to that time when games were a thing that connected me with other people. And like, I just wanted to like pay the sufficient uh, homage to like, you know, the, the fondest memory I have of that, you know. A lot of that comes down to your own personal level of confidence in your idea and where you think you're at with it. So like, in an ideal world, you know what you've made and you know what's good about it and you know what's not good about it. And you're then sort of testing that theory by showing people. I think the danger of showing things a bit too early is that people don't react to it well and then your confidence is shaken and you worry that that it's not a cool thing and that's bad uh, and but but like but as you get more experienced i guess you like so i guess over time i would say that i show things to people a bit later because i'm because i've got to the point where I like i kind of am confident that i'm making a cool thing and i'm not quite ready to show it yet because i know for sure that it will bounce off a lot of people because there's things that need tidying up. It's like, you know, 
audio design is really important and, and just like really clear upfront instructions is really important and like just making sure that people, you know, and often that's like the last stuff you put in. And so it's, these days I think I probably wait a bit longer, but I think if you're confident in, in you've made a cool thing, then it can be valuable in, an, in the early stage. If, you, if you're just starting out making video games, it can be really valuable just to show your stupid half-broken thing to people because there's, there's also morale building in like watching somebody play a thing you made, and like that can be really powerful and exciting as well. But yeah, there's a lot of caveats there. Yeah, I think it really depends on what kind of game you're making. I think if, if I was making something very mechanical, it's all about the gameplay mechanic and that kind of stuff, like I'd probably do paper prototypes like Ricky did, but I'd probably bring people in, see if they understand this, see if they find it compelling, that kind of thing. But like for Nights and Bikes, like it's a game that's all about feel. And like capturing the feel of being a child is not a thing that you can be like, oh, we put this thing together, do you feel like a child? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, there's so many pieces, like you have to get these characters, you have to do the setting, you have to do all this. Like it's so much more complicated. So for that same reason, like, I think we were probably on our, our third, you know, from scratch rewrite before we showed anyone. Because the first couple of things, it's like, there's some cool gameplay mechanics in here and some cool looking things, but it doesn't capture this feel yet. And I think until we were convinced that, you know, we, we kind of got that, that feel in a bottle, like we, didn't, we weren't gonna show anyone else because there's no way they would, you know, having less context than us, there's no way they would really understand it yet. That was Muyu of Studio Foam Sword. Next up, the role of the producer. They play a pivotal role, but what do they actually do? Whether you want to be a producer or need to work with one, this session had the answers. We'll hear Sophie Rossetti from Bossa Studios, John Rennie, TV and game producer, Adrian Law, Us Two Games, who built Monument Valley, and Des Gale from Altered Gene. Your host is journalist Will Freeman, and we pick up the conversation as he asks John how being a games producer differs from a TV producer. I mean, it's still the same thing, again, like I said before, it's telling a story. Mm -hmm. um, so games is, is just, you know, creating something, again, pre-production, production, you know, post, really, when mm -hmm. you're doing the testing and the, the final, mm -hmm. you know, which takes 90% of the time, usually. But, you know, all the skills we, in, in, in the company, we kind of grown very organically. The programmers are ex-animators. Right. So they've come from the animation side. Our, our company, in similar, you know, with UX side, you've, you've come into games that way. We've come into it from animation mm -hmm. uh, and film. So, um, you know, our interest is in creating games that have a particular animation focus and a mm -hmm. really good, you know, sort of, sort of visual uh, quality. Uh, and obviously with, with the children's side, which has thankfully played the bills for a while, um, you know, with that comes a certain requirement to make things very simple and accessible. Mm. So I think like all these skills are transferable, and actually, the more you know, the better. I mean, I don't think I would have done so well. I say done so well, egotistical, but done as much as I have done, I should say, if I hadn't had the experience first of doing games, then yep. doing filmmaking, then doing compositing, animation. So you know, <laughs> ten years of doing that, and then start a company, and then do it. I think that's actually brought in a lot of different areas that otherwise I think it would have tripped me up. Right. If I and hadn't it, have had that experience already of just managing people, really. And I'm watching other people manage people. Uh, yeah. The experience of that. And I guess there's through things like virtual reality, there's <coughs> kind of a natural crossover between the industry. You know, the work of game developers is, let's say, becoming like the work of architects in VR. That's true, but not so relevant here. But there must be more reason for those transferable skills well, to have a... Pro or am I being... No, no, VR's interesting, actually, because... How much of it is a gimmick? <laughs> Ask me in two years' time. That's our next panel, um, so we can... Yeah. Uh, we can <laughs> VR's <laughs> lovely, but it's a, it's, it's a solitary experience. And, you know, in some ways, I don't really 
play live games anymore. I don't have time. Mm. But I enjoy watching other people play games. VR is going to be interesting, the fact that you can't sit down and watch your friend play a game next to you, but you can put on a VR helmet and be in there with them. However, it requires everybody in the room to have a VR helmet, so it's not the most social experience. But just in terms of generally how emerging... You know, we've kind of established that game producing is quite diverse and flexible, and your role might change as you move between companies. How much do emerging technologies, whether hardware like VR or something in the game development process, a piece of middleware, for example, like, are you guys constantly having to keep an ear to the rail of the future, like, or the core craft of producing remain unchanged through technological change? I feel like a core part of the role is to be adaptive anyway, so I think it's kind of the same thing. You have, right. to, you have to stay as a core thing, you know, and always keep an ear to what's happening. So the consistent is change. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, definitely, you know, like mobile, you know, your whole studio is kind of based around this mobile experience that wasn't there not that long ago, so that's like a whole thing. And just, you know, generally, um, just going back to your point as well, like with film, there's pre-production and production and post, which you can broadly map out the same with games. But I would personally think more about it as like episodic TV because of the way technology is going. It's getting easier to iterate, you know, just to release patches and updates and stuff, especially with mobile, that's kind of like part of the model, you know, like what is your live ops plan? That's kind of part of it. So, yeah, I'd say that like, yeah, being adaptive, but also seeing how you can, yeah, transfer those skills over is, is important. I mean, actually, the one thing that's just changed a lot for me is, you know, I started doing, like, Don't You Keep It In The Hospital, which is you release a game. If you're lucky, you reduce, a, you know, you do a, a follow-on one that can fix all the bugs later. Because now you can, you know, release them over time. But we're getting to the point now where games that we made three years ago, we need to keep updated Still on the ice storm. Them. Because mm. either they get taken off or they don't work on new devices. So, actually, what I have to say to producers now is, Okay, great, you've got a budget for making a game, but what's your budget in three years' time when you're still going to support that game, when the show's still on air, what are you going to be doing? So I think that's actually where the games industry has changed a lot, is that it's no longer simply just making something and then releasing it. You've got ongoing costs, support stuff, for long you want it to remain live. Yeah. And all the, you know, sort of support stuff that goes along with it when people moan about why something doesn't work. Yeah. Des Gale ending that session on producing. And as Will said, we'll be talking about VR later in the podcast. Hello, I'm Jodie Azhar and I'm currently the lead technical artist for the Total War series at Creative Assembly. I'm going to be talking about my career, how I got to my position as a lead technical artist, my journey along the way and some advice and things that I've learned during my career. So I started at Creative Assembly at the end of development for Total War Rome 2, and there didn't seem a huge point in me sort of coming in at the tail end and fixing bugs that I didn't really know the system or the engine. So I went straight in to work on Total War Warhammer. At the time, on the historical titles, where animations had mostly been sort of humans having fights, maybe some dogs and elephants, the animation system in terms of creating assets, was mostly in Motion Builder, but with the variety of characters for Total War Warhammer, which includes dragons um, and manticores, um, bats and all manner of things, and a thing called a Chaos Spawn, which has lots of tentacles, um, Motion Builder didn't quite sort of match the requirements. So we were looking to move to Maya, and we needed to create a rigging system that dealt with sort of all these complex creatures, but that was easy for animators to sort of move between different rigs without getting confused as to what controls did, did what. Um, it needed to be friendly for them. 
Um, and it also needed to deal with changes. So inevitably throughout game production, the design may change or you suddenly put something into game and, and realize, oh, when it's at this size on the screen or next to all these other objects, it might look too small or actually it needs to have a, have a bigger attack range and you may need to change the rig. So it needs to create a robust system. So during Total War Warhammer, I continued to support the animators until sort of about halfway through the project where I made the switch over to become a senior technical artist. That change came about from a conversation at the pub. So it was, I think it was somebody's leaving do um, and I was there with um, our art director who sort of oversees the entire art department. And we just got into a discussion with a couple of other people about sort of, we, we didn't have a, a formal technical art team. Uh, we had a couple of people who were technically minded and cre could create scripts to support the, the artists in sort of speeding up processes. But there was no one whose job it was sort of dedicated to be looking out for those technical issues. The, the people who were already supporting it, they, they had responsibilities to create art assets um, for the game um, to make content. So while I was at the pub having this conversation, I was kind of like, well, that's something that I could do. And I followed it back up in the office of, actually, is, is this a real thing? Like, do, do you want someone to do this? Um, and I was able to make that transition over. And that was the start of our sort of official technical art department on Total War. That was Breakthrough Brit Jodie Azhar, artist at Creative Assembly, sharing lessons learned in the opening chapter of her career. Meanwhile, in Glasgow, there was also a session on getting up the career ladder in games. Here's Lucy Black, producer at Media Molecule, who made Little Big Planet. Let's hear an extract introduced by host Romana Ramzan. So uh, just carrying on from that, how does somebody get past you then? Because I'm sure plenty <laughs> of people will have this question. How do they actually kind of make it past you? And then what's the sort of next stage beyond that? Okay, well, the main thing for getting past me is, well, I'll, I'll try and list it if I can. Number one, apply for one of the jobs that you've got listed because I don't have time to look at your CV and think about you in, as you might apply to another role that we're not actually looking for in the studio at that time. So then I'll just file you away, basically, into a not looking for at the moment folder. Number two, if you are applying for one of the jobs, have read the job description properly and the requirements. You know, if that says we need a showreel, then we need a showreel. My pet hate right now, if I could talk about my pet hates right now, my pet hate right now, is getting an email where there's a CV attached, good, that's great, uh, but then there are a bunch of disparate links to different websites and different, you know, things that they may have done, but, you know, a game website that without specifying what it was that they worked on, or I don't want a bunch of disparate links, I want one link or one piece of material that will distill your essence into that. That could be a website, where you've put all the stuff that you're happy with, that you're proud of, onto the website. That could be a showreel, if that's appropriate for the kind of thing that you're doing. It could be a GitHub link, if you're a programmer. Um, just basically take all the things that you're proud of, and I mean, you need to, if you're not already doing this, you need to start doing this now. Every time you make something, um, keep a hold of it in some shape or form, even if it's, you know, you, take, you make a little clip thing of it, you make, you know, then you're going to add that into a showreel later on. Just keep a record of absolutely everything that you're making 
um, refine it into this website, showreel, whatever it is, and then keep iterating that. Keep adding to it, keep going back through it and going, ooh, that looks a bit dodgy now, and get rid of that bit and replace it with something mm -hmm. better. Just keep the record of things that you have made, um, the distilled essence of you. That's mm -hmm. how you get past me, basically. <laughs> Fantastic. And what are the sort of, I guess, the key qualities of a... Um, what is it you call them? Is it molecules? Molecules. Molecules, yeah. yes. What yeah. are the key qualities in, like, you know, molecules? Uh, have a really high quality bar. Mm -hmm. Be prepared to work very hard, but then that's games in general. Be prepared to iterate your work. That's, that's the big thing that our studio does. I mean, I think most people do it now. Um, you know, whatever we make is there until something's be something better is there, basically. We're mm -hmm. constantly iterating our work, so you have to be not precious about stuff that you've done. I do remember in the early days when artists would be like, I'm not changing that. It's perfect, just how it is. And you can't do that at Media Molecule. You can't be like, but, but this is my thing that I perfectly crafted. Yeah, it's not good enough, it's going. So you have to be able to, you know, give up work that you might have sweated blood and tears over. And you, you have to be good at your craft. The thing about Media Molecule is that in terms of companies that make big AAA games, we're tiny. Uh, at the moment, we're somewhere between 55 and 60 people, depending on if you count contractors. Mm -hmm. um, we're quite production heavy because we want to take as much, you know, we don't want programmers and artists and designers doing production tasks. So we take on people who are already really good. You know, there, there are companies out there that will take on graduates and stuff, we don't tend to do that because we just don't have the, the bandwidth the for it. We need people to come in and hit the ground running, mm -hmm. basically. Next up, there are so many ways to tell stories in games, it can be a bit bewildering. So let's hear about the opportunities and the challenges of interactive storytelling from this panel of experts. William Pugh, director of Crows, 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 games writers Dan Abnett and Rihanna Pratchett, who wrote Alien Isolation and Tomb Raider, respectively. Plus Joseph Humphrey, the co-founder of Inkle, the studio that made 80 Days. Your host is Jordan Erica Weber, and let's join the conversation where Joseph lays out his theory of the different types of games writers that pervade the industry. Yeah, so it's just something I started to notice when um, working on 80 Days, where we had two writers on board. We had Meg Giants, who is uh, the lead uh, writer on that project, and we had John Ingold, who's my co-founder, so is also kind of a prominent, uh, he does the, the kind of any internal writing, and he's kind of the writing expert at the studio. And so they both worked collaboratively on the project, but what I started to notice is that they both had slightly different interests in the, in the types of things that they were interested in. For example, Meg, was a kind of is a voracious reader and she does huge amounts of research and she really loves learning about um, well in the case of 80 days all of the cultures around the world and what she could draw inspiration from there um, John's slightly less interested in the research aspect but he's a great creative writer um, and he's also extremely good technically mm. um, and so you know as you start to mix writing and design together and and the uh, technical aspects of games he's really good at bringing those things together and, and kind of being able to look at the big picture of the structure of the story. And when it's really interactive, that's really quite a technical thing. So they really complemented each other really well. And what I kind of noticed is that it kind of matched a little bit of what you see in other roles in the game industry, that you have 
you know, a spectrum um, from artists, from kind of, say, uh, concept artists up to technical artists. And they're both artists and they're both technical, but they also have kind of different complementary skills. And I think it would be great if we started to identify that in writers as well, that mm. Meg was more of a, almost like a, a world-building um, concept writer, almost, and John was more of a technical writer. Mm. Have any of the rest of you noticed any kind of different writing roles? Um, I think so. I mean, when I first started out, it was usually one writer and that was you, and you were lucky if there was anyone else in the team who cared <laughs> about narrative. And if there was, you wanted to kind of mentally hug them every day. <laughs> um, and, you know, games like The Overlord, franchise I wrote every bit of writing there was, you know, from all the, the kind of cutscenes to barks to weapon text to player titles, um, everything. And partly that's because I, I was the, the only writer there, but also they, it was a, a Dutch studio, so mm. that uh, English was their second language. So that, that was kind of helpful, and there was a lot less interference. Um, <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I think that, that probably helped. And it was a very... The overall games were very sort of collaborative with the designers. Um, but with something like Tomb Raider, on the first game, there was just uh, two writers, uh, myself and John, John Stafford, who is the, the senior narrative designer, for a long time, I was there on my own, pleading with the creative director to get a narrative designer because we needed that support and we needed someone that had one foot in the camp of design and one foot in the camp of narrative. And John did a lot of the, the secondary narrative, so diaries and journals. And I, I did a lot of the sort of cinematics plus a lot of Lara journals mm. and um, things that sort of fold, folded into Lara. And then with, uh, with Rise, we sort of expanded out to, to four of us. So two in-house people, both one, one narrative director, one narrative designer, and then two writers externally. Um, I was sort of working a lot on the cinematics and, and Lara's stuff and Lara's diaries and Lara's father's diaries. And it, it sort of allows external writers, you know, you don't have to get involved in the politics of work. You have kind of probably a more conducive writing environment than most offices are. <laughs> and At home in your yeah, pyjamas. And you don't... You don't get to fight which could be good and bad mm. um, so you, you kind of don't get the stress and you can sort of work you can focus on the, the creative aspect more if you look at things like Bioware they've got huge teams of, of writers now that take each takes a character class I've come in to do very specific writing roles on a project on Bioshock Infinite I came in just to do barks mm. I've had other writers come into my projects just to do barks which are for anyone that doesn't know, it's the short lines of AI dialogue or companion dialogue. What the enemies say before you shoot yeah. them. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it is, it's kind of really nice to see because you're getting a little bit more of a writing room vibe and you've got other people to bounce off and you don't feel so sad and alone. <laughs> <laughs> Right. What was that like for you, Dan, coming into a game from the outside? Well, I was going to say that the, 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 the sad and alone part was the real reason that I started working in Took Up Games, because it was a nice opportunity not to do what I normally do, which is sit on my own in a room writing. Um, games so, to make you less alone. Yes, <laughs> games to make you less alone. I, 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 um, I mean, I started out a long time ago in comics editorial, so I was used to working in an office environment, and then had been freelance for such a long time that the opportunity to work with a games company, even if it was m a matter of visiting them once a week or something for a day, to work in an office environment with the team was a refreshing change of pace mm. to, to writing something all on your own. From almost everything that I've done, I've been the external writer who visits. In some cases, I've worked on games that I've never set foot in the, the building because it's the other side of the planet. Mm. Um, because I came in with 
completely apologise for the fact that I'm, I'm not, I, I am not a gamer. I'm just a writer. And That's therefore, okay. I, I was hired <laughs> the, to begin with about 10 years ago when I first started getting game jobs on the basis that I knew how to write and knew absolutely nothing about games. And often that, that was a very, very useful thing because I would be the idiot in the corner who would sit up and ask the really blindingly obvious question about mm. why. And most of the time, people were able to laugh at me and tell me why, which is great. But every now and then, I'd ask a question and they went, and the answer was because that's how we do it in games. And that actually has proven to be very useful on occasion. Yeah. My sheer ignorance somehow turned into a plus. And you can hear full interviews with the sound designers of Alien Isolation, plus more advice from Rihanna Pratchett in other editions of The Guru. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Time for a masterclass from two masters of the medium. We're about to hear how to take an indie project or AAA title from drawing board to delivery from industry pros Alistair Hebson, founder and lead creative at Steely Glint Games, and John McKellen, game developer at No Code. Let's hear a clip. Um, so the first thing when you're starting off, um, and this goes for indie, solo project, AAA, it's, it's really the best way to do things, not only to help yourself understand things, but... Like say, if you've got a team yourself or you're part of a team to help everyone understand it. Find tools that make you the most productive right from the start. So, um, for example, we use a thing called Confluence, which is like an internal Wikipedia, a private Wikipedia that you can use. Um, that's super customizable. You can put images, videos, you name it on and collaborate on it. And we also use a tool called Scrivener for writing, which is more of a personal tool. Um, for writers and you know if you're writing a story or you're putting together game design bibles it's like a good way of pulling this stuff together the thing about collaborative tools a lot of people overlook them when they're not in a big team because they they think they don't need it we're small enough we're all around one desk we don't really need to do that but even for small teams or just yourself it helps you articulate what it is you're trying to put together by writing it down like you've got this great idea in your head and then you try and explain it to someone in person you'll stumble over your words and you'll, you'll kind of go, well, it's kind of like this and it's kind of like that and you won't be able to work out exactly what it is you're trying to say. If you write that down and refine the sentence and refine the, you know, the high-level uh, kind of vision into a good paragraph or good sentence, you'll get better at explaining what your game is, which will ultimately make communication much easier. Now, one of the ways that we do that, especially in AAA, I found, is defining uh, building blocks and pillars so pillars are kind of like the high, the, the kind of high-level vision, but in smaller chunks. The pillars are like three or four key mechanics in your game. Not necessarily gameplay mechanics, but like the three or four most identifiable or unique parts of your game that you, you use to explain and categorize elements of your game and also use to um, measure everything against. So, uh, for example, Alien Isolation had five pillars, I think, four or five pillars. The main, like the kind of most used one was lo-fi sci-fi and the idea that every bit of technology on the ship, every gameplay mechanic had to feel like it was kind of baked in the past a little bit and it wasn't futuristic. Even though we're set in the future, it didn't feel like Mass Effect. It didn't feel like Star Trek. So everything from gameplay, you know, things like hacking games and construction mechanics and, and things like that, to the visual design, to the way the characters' outfits looked, it all came back to this idea of lo-fi sci-fi. So a, a concept artist who doesn't know what's in your head, just has a brief, draws something and can then think, does this feel lo-fi? Does it feel lo-fi sci-fi? Or does it feel like something you'd get in Mass Effect? And it, and it helps them steer their, their art into a certain direction. And if you apply that across the board from 
designers, from musicians, uh, programmers, everything. It's all about trying to create this one vision. Because if you're in a team like Alien Isolation had about 100 people on it by its peak dev, trying to get 100 people to think the same is really tricky, <laughs> let alone something like Rockstar, which is like, what, 500 in Rockstar North now or something? It's like trying to get 500 people to have the same idea is nuts. So the only thing you can do is, is really clearly articulate your idea and hope that they can kind of measure from that. John McKellen. Let's end with the future. And here's a hot tip. VR is the future. Get more hot tips on designing and directing virtual reality direct from the developers doing it. This is Tanya Lard, creator of the VR Writers Room. But first, Greg Ferber, VR director at Rewind, talking about the challenges of shooting 360 video and true VR. 360 video, having been a traditional director for years before coming into it, uh, having worked on about 250 commercials, I had to learn, we learned how to shoot, how to edit, what works, what doesn't work. The, the language of film is 120-ish years old. You have techniques that have developed and been shortcuts for everything. In 360 video, you can't edit in the same way, you can't jump around the scene in the same way, you can't start with an establishing shot, cut to an over the shoulder, have a two shot, have a mid, have a close up to tell different things. Everything has to be done in, usually in a single take. Uh, so you want to be using theatre actors, not screen actors, because if you've ever seen a, theater, a screen actor have to do more than a two minute take, you're <laughs> in for a treat of a meltdown. Um, I have videos I can't show you, but they are hilarious. And it's, it's relearning those rules because actually when someone's in a headset, particularly you can make them feel massively unwell just using the things that would be the normal way of doing things. So there's a whole new language of uh, cinematography and editing to learn. With Could you just give us a couple of examples, you think? Well, so camera movement is a massive part. You know, everyone knows that a very subtle, gentle push-in is a really nice way to draw someone into a frame. But if you did that in VR, you've got a really subtle way of making someone feel a little bit sick. Uh, especially if you're doing like a nice little gentle arc around a scene and stuff like that. Some of the kind of the very standard cinematography that people lean on so heavily, and if you particularly watch commercials, we'll see in every single shot in those 10, 15 shots in 30 mm -hmm. seconds. Editing-wise, you're not, if you're doing a 30-second commercial in 360 video, you're probably doing a single take, uh, two takes, two shots at most, because actually you can't jump around because people need time in a scene to feel comfortable and nested and understand what's going on. And if you suddenly jump them around from shot to shot, location to location, even within the same room, they start to feel overwhelmed and just shut down to what you're doing. So the, just the whole way of approaching it is much closer to the way people were shooting things when they were trying to shoot 1920s expressionism and kind of bring uh, effectively theater to the screen. In, in true VR, you've got a whole other challenge where you've got people in this experience where they're free to roam around, but you, what's crucial is that they're doing what you're telling them to do and what you want them to do but making them feel free at the same time. And now video games has a huge history and a series of tricks and techniques for doing that from that key color somewhere in the frame that guides you through the past. I don't know if anyone's played the new Doom. The color green is a lifesaver in that game. You know if you can make a jump, you know if that's the right way to go. If you're lost in a level and you look around and see the green dot, you're like, that, I need to get there. Yeah. That's fine. Um, motion through frame, lighting, positional audio, all of those kind of things can be used to guide someone in, in an experience to where you need them to be looking. We've got a, a spacewalk uh, piece called Home, and there's a key moment where it's absolutely essential that you're looking at exactly that point of the frame at exactly the right time, otherwise you're gonna miss one of the key moments. And the way we do that is have a camera that you're supposed to get out of a box, and it floats up and you're trying to grab it, and it's actually impossible to grab it, but the player doesn't know that, they think they've missed, but because you're looking there, 
the asteroid that shoots through frame is exactly where you're, where you're looking. So there are just a kind of a raft of techniques and tricks you have to use to make people look where you want them to be looking and engaging with it, knowing that when they're looking at that, things act, uh, as well as using kind of uh, hot point, hot spots and stuff like that. So knowing that when they're looking at that, things activate to make sure that those key moments that you want people to feel are discovered organically and freely and in their own time, uh, that you're actually in control of them and they're just your rat in a maze, um, which is fun. It's, it's really exciting, though. Is it not really exciting? Because you're kind of it's, rewriting it's, sort of the, the language in a way. Uh, it's exciting, it's terrifying, and it's exhausting all at once. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> nausea-inducing. Um, it's fun. It's like a all good fun. first dates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's, it's finding this path uh, that you know should be there and know there's a way to get the outcome you want, but trying to figure it out and make people feel like they've not been tricked into doing what you want them to do, I think is the, the biggest challenge and the difference between a piece that people feel they were at the heart of a story that unfolded around them uh, and they were kind of the, the linchpin of the story and just sitting on a roller coaster and a lot of the early DK1 stuff was a roller coaster. And do you know what? A lot of the, the CV1 stuff and, the, and the, the Vive stuff is secretly a roller coaster, but where you feel like you're driving the car and it makes just a, a raft of difference in terms of engagement enjoyment and creating something that people are actually going to want to spend 800 pounds on a headset two grand on a pc and then 10 pound on your thing it's amazing how people will spend three grand and then begrudge you 9.99 for a title <laughs> like like i'm sure you're all of the iphone users in here are going i spent a thousand pounds on this phone i'm not sure i want to spend 199 on that app and that's the i think the the biggest challenge we're trying to overcome as well is that the people have this insanely powerful toy that they've spent way too much money on, let's be honest, and yet they're quibbling over 9.99 and expect it for free and all that kind of thing. It's, it's maddening. I feel like this is like a moderate therapy session for most of our panelists. Just like, if you just want to rent your frustrations at the end, that's what I love. I'm going to pick up on a few points that were said here, because first of all, in terms of the how much are people willing to spend thing, I do think that that's actually a perception issue uh, yeah. around the value and quality of what VR actually is. And, and because it's so fragmented at the moment where people are creating mobile content versus true VR, you know, gaming headset content, tethered concept, whatever you want to call it. I mean, at both ends of that spectrum, the pricing is quite different. And for the mainstream consuming public, there is still quite a confusion about that. If you are an owner of a tethered headset and a PC, you're already in a bubble of maybe 2% of the population who actually own one of these things. You're already somebody who's very selective about what you're going to pay for something anyway. Whereas if you're the mainstream public and you are just trying a cardboard or, you know, gear VR for the first time, you're kind of assuming it's going to be mobile phone kind of pricing. So when you see something that is beyond what you would normally pay, for a mobile app, you're kind of like, ooh, hold on a minute, what, what am I getting into here? So, you know, so there is this common misconception on both ends of that spectrum. But going back to the directing piece, um, so first of all, in terms of what, what is one of the things that, that is most important to understand fundamentally from the outset is all about understanding how you articulate agency to your audience. And as a director, that has to be one of the first things that you need to decide is, is this a piece where actually my audience does have agency? Is this a roller coaster? Is this a, you know, sit inside the car with your hands inside the vehicle and we will take you where you need to go? Or is this actually something where they can get out and they can sandbox it and they can interact with all of the points around them? And these are two very different types of experience which require two very different types and styles and approach to directing. Then the other kind of area that I think is, is quite interesting to note as well is just in terms of this terminology, and, and as you were kind of saying, it's like you're 
reinventing this, this whole new terminology for things. The thing is, is that there are other industries, such as the immersive theatre industry or the theatre industry, where actually, you know, they, they are pretty good at this stuff. First of all, they, they, they understand how to go the entire show without any cuts, you know, without... Let's do another retake of that. You know, they understand how to, how to actually perform for VR, and that is actually a skill unto itself. Is a lot of people don't realise that performing for 360 film or performing for VR um, is a very, very different skill set to somebody who is traditionally a TV actor or a film actor or even just a traditional theatre actor. How is it different? What so, as a for example, you aren't you aren't looking at it from a I'm going to take I've got this frame and I'm going to put you in this frame and you're going to do this piece of action and you're going to do it to camera or you're going to do it to that point over there or whatever that thing is. But also, by the by, we're going to cut shots in between so you you need to make sure that you're going to hit that mark over there and you're going to hit that mark over there. The problem is, is that when you're doing 360, it's not just the actor who needs to understand the fact that anybody can be looking from any angle at any point because they can walk around you, essentially, and they can you know, lean in deeper or, or lean back or, or completely ignore you, um, you know, depending on what they want to do. Um, but also all the people who are, who are doing all the other peripheral um, you know, pieces around that in terms of the lighting, um, you know, binaural or 360 sound, or all of those other elements need to understand. If you're doing a live live action capture you don't get a chance to reset that you know you do it and it's got to be one take so if you're going to do it you need to be really really clear on the articulation from a writer's perspective and a, a kind of a narrative perspective understanding from the very first get-go what are the options here tanya laird speaking with greg ferber and host julia hardy and that's it from this final show of highlights from guru live 2017 if you've not heard the other two episodes, which cover film and TV, you really, really should. Be inspired by creatives across all media. Learn from each other. I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Subscribe to hear more from us in the future. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.